Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Saturday, January 27th, day 113 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borchel Dan here with our U.S. Bureau Chief, Jacob Magid. Hello, Jacob. Hey, Amanda. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Today is International Holocaust Remembrance Day, and we'll hear about how Israel is now on the docket for genocide at the Hague's International Court of Justice and U.S. reactions to this case. We'll also explore how suddenly the international community is waking up to the cooperation of some dozen UNRWA workers in the October 7th massacre in Israel. All this and much more when we're back. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. First, some headlines. Yemen's Houthi rebels launched a missile Friday at a U.S. warship patrolling the Gulf of Aden, forcing it to shoot down the projectile and struck a British vessel as their aggressive attacks on maritime traffic continue. Today, Yemen's internationally recognized government says defensive U.S. and British strikes on the Houthi rebels aren't enough and called for U.S. and Saudi support to eliminate their ability to stage attacks on the Red Sea shipping. Rocket sirens have been sounded this afternoon throughout northern Israel, and one rocket was fired from the Gaza Strip at the southern city of Sterot. The IDF says intensive fighting continues in southern Gaza's Khan Yunus, and the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry says 174 Palestinians have been killed in fighting in the Strip in the past 24 hours, bringing the death toll since the start of the war to 26,257. These figures cannot be independently verified and are believed to include both civilians and Hamas members killed in Gaza, including as consequence of terror groups' own rocket misfires. Today, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz called on all citizens to defend Germany's democracy and fight anti-Semitism as the country marks the 79th anniversary of the liberation of the Nazi death camp Auschwitz during World War II. Also marking International Holocaust Remembrance Day, U.S. President Joe Biden warned against an alarming rise in anti-Semitism after Hamas's October 7th terror onslaught, along with efforts by some parties to minimize what happened that day. So what did Biden say, Jacob? Yeah, so these statements that the president issues each year are largely similar. Um, I think the unique part in this statement, um, as you just mentioned, was this this highlighting of, of October 7th, that he said that we must also forcefully push back against attempts to ignore, deny, distort, and revise history. This includes Holocaust denialism 
and efforts to minimize the horrors that Hamas perpetrated on October 7th. So this decision to include the October 7th uh, massacres in its statement was something that's unique and I think um, is clearly shows that the administration is taking is trying to take this seriously, that it's not um, only looking at the Holocaust through a past lens, but also through a modern day lens and trying to apply the lessons to what we've been seeing in, the, in recent months. Now, ironically, the day before the world marked the genocide of the Jews and the Holocaust, the International Court of Justice ruled yesterday that at least some of Israel's actions in the Gaza Strip during the ongoing war against Hamas could fall within the terms of the Genocide Convention and said it must therefore take a series of preventative measures. We'll dive into the case more deeply during the week, but what kinds of reactions are we hearing to this ruling, Jacob? So most of the countries who are more supportive of the Palestinian cause, be it Turkey, Qatar, um, obviously the Palestinian Authority, and Hamas itself, and then uh, Spain as well, were very welcoming of this this ruling. Obviously, it didn't go as far as they wanted. A lot of these countries were hoping that, or of course, South Africa was hoping that there would be this immediate injunction for a ceasefire, um, which is not what the court decided to do. However, I think because it really put this issue on the agenda and said that there are plausibility to the allegation that Israel's committing genocide, I think that was a, a was a major victory for South Africa and for these countries that are looking to advance this case. So they definitely celebrated the ruling. On the other hand, you had the United States, um, which took a more measured uh, approach, basically saying that it stands by its assertion that genocide, the, the genocide accusation is unfounded, as it put it. And then it made a point of highlighting certain aspects of the ruling that it agreed with. That is that the ruling did not call for an immediate ceasefire, it didn't uh, make a specific finding regarding genocide. It kind of put it, put that decision off. And then it called for the unconditional release of the hostages. So those were things that the U.S. was able to get behind. Um, the U.S. says that the ruling is consistent also with its view that that Israel has a right to ensure October 7th doesn't happen again. And it's the, just a question of how it goes about doing that, which is what the U.S. says often. Um, then it notes that the court took issue with the civilian casualties in Gaza and the lack of humanitarian aid. And incendiary comments made by various ministers, or even President Isaac Herzog. And the U.S. says, look, we too have been pushing on Israel on these issues. And we agree that the court took the, took these seriously as well. So those are the kind of the various responses. You also had some folks in the, the EU statement and also Germany, actually, who came out and, and made this third party decision to join um, the case on Israel's side, but it did say in its response to this initial ruling, along with the EU, that the Israel has, to, has an obligation to abide by its findings and its orders. So some pretty significant takeaways. Um, I think beyond that, this was basically a yellow card for Israel. It wasn't the worst result that it was seeking. Again, this not a this call for an immediate ceasefire, which Israel was really concerned about getting, even though there's not clear how enforceable that would have been. But it definitely still, um, because it moves forward this case, basically is this yellow card that Israel needs gonna, is going to have to be much more careful about how it prosecutes this war. I spoke with an Israeli official um, over, the, over the weekend who admitted that part of the reason that Israel decided to scale back in its fighting um, to this lower intensity fighting had to do with international pressure. Now, obviously, this is mainly international pressure from the U.S., but it's broader. Um, and I think this, this, um, this ruling is going to have an impact, even if it's not, even if this case isn't actually decided for, for years from now. 
I think it's also a, a bit of a diplomatic failure that it got this far. Of course, there's clear bias against Israel that the countries are not, other countries are not facing, and that these comments made by ministers and, and the president are made. Some of them are clearly against referring to Hamas, and not all Palestinians in Gaza when they're talking about some who we're going to pursue in our in prosecuting this war, but. A lot of them were also made in the heat in the moment, and you can understand it. But these are leaders that have responsibility um, and need to be more careful um, in, in the way that they choose their words publicly, knowing that the the world is very much w- watching. I think um, it was definitely smart for Israel to cooperate with this with this decision to with with this case. Not there was a debate of whether to even send a team, um, but they chose to do so, and I think it likely prevented this worst case scenario of an immediate ceasefire because the courts saw that Israel is taking these allegations seriously. And it was also, um, I think it helped this case to have Aaron Barak there, this um, former J- Supreme Court uh, president who was very much harangued by Prime Minister Netanyahu's camp for years, but was relied upon to take part in this decision and influence the panel. And even, but he actually, even he mo- voted with the majority on co- urging Israel to take measures against incitement by, by its lawmakers and also to boost humanitarian aid into Gaza. So that's the, the case in the response in a nutshell. Jacob, thank you so much for that update. We'll go to a short break. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be privileged to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. And we're back. Yesterday, the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees said it had sacked several employees accused by Israel of involvement in Hamas's unprecedented October 7th attack on the southern communities. The accusation also prompted the United States to suspend funding to the organizations. And since then, several other countries have followed suit. So tell us more about the specifics of the case first, Jacob. So the details that we have are a little limited. I can say I spoke with an Israeli official on Friday who said that basically the Shin Bet and the IDF passed along intelligence to UNRWA several weeks ago or to the UN several weeks ago um, that revealed details, um, I think some footage. It was a whole trove of evidence that they said tying employees to active participation in the October 7th terror onslaught and also the use of UNRWA vehicles and UNRWA sites that helped um, perpetrate the attack. 
So some very damning evidence, clearly because UNRWA took the step on Friday to announce um, that it was opening this investigation, sacking what it said was several employees. We learned from the U.S. response that there there are 12 who are under suspicion of taking a part in the attack. So we would assume that those 12 are the ones that were fired. Um, That's what is meant by several. Um, And the U.N. also has launched this independent review of UNRWA that the U.S. also praised. Um, Basically... I think it's important to, in terms of takeaways, people like to blame the UN, this amorphous body, but these are, these are local Palestinians there, um, who are, who are members of and, and staffers of UNRWA, um, this relief agency. And it either shows either how widespread support for Hamas is and, and, and for the attack that took place on October 7th, or what we've have been hearing a lot of evidence from the IDF, um, in recent weeks that, that Hamas has simply just taken over the agency. Um, because Hamas is in control of everything that, that basically run, goes in and out of Gaza, it's obviously going to be in control of UNRWA as well. So we can't be too surprised that UNRWA employees who are, have ties to Hamas are participating in this attack. But the major responses of this U.S. decision to immediately halt any additional funding, look, I think given that they've already donated a million, millions and uh, millions of dollars since the war, billions of dollars over the past year. It might not have an immediate fa- effect because I think they might have some in the in the bank to use. But it, the U.S. is the largest donor by far, and going back to turning turning this about back on, if this investigation somehow proves that this is just an isolated incident of twelve people, which I I doubt it's going to be that simple. Um, due to pressure from Congress, I, I think it's going to be very hard for the U.S. to turn around and say, OK, we're going to resume aid uh, to UNRWA. I think Congress is a place where APEC and some of um, these more hawkish lo- or pro-Israel lobbies are are advocating, are have much more influence and are able to, I think, sway Congress, who is already very skeptical, especially in the Republican Party um, and even some in the Democratic Party um, to against UNRWA, where the White House has been much more supportive because it feels like we don't have any other options. Um, but as you mentioned, the U.S. was followed by Canada, Australia, the U.K., Finland and Italy have all announced that they're temporarily halting funding. So this is a major, major issue um, if we're trying to think about what's going to happen in terms of services for Palestinians, aid um, in Gaza. There could not, there might not be an address uh, months down the line or, or for, until, if UNRWA runs out of money. I think Israel in the past has tried to block efforts to cut funding because it knows that if, if there's no UNRWA, nobody's going to step up to the plate. And Israel could find itself, because it's really in control of the borders of Gaza, could be seen as responsible under international law to to provide uh, services for these for these Palestinians. But I think right now there's going to be an effort to try to create a new body, um, which is what Foreign Minister Israel Katz talked about uh, of after the war of some sort of new agency being replacing UNRWA moving forward. This is hardly the first time that Israel is in conflict with this agency, in specifically UNRWA. And of course, the the relationship between Israel and the United Nations is always fraught. Hamas leadership has often cited the United Nations as the body that is charged with taking care of its citizens, not the Hamas leadership itself. And so doesn't that kind of also play into this idea that Hamas is so embedded in this organization that they just feel like it's the arm of Hamas that brings the aid to the people? Yeah, I think they see that there's a lot of sympathy from the staffers of the agency um, and and they've able to use them as as pawns. The ones abroad are able to be used as pawns and the ones on the ground are just either affiliated with Hamas or actual Hamas fighters or 
look, the, the, to be fair, the agency says that it's it's investigated every allegation in the past and and taken measures when it when it finds that there are actually connections that it's that when its facilities and sites are being used um, in terror attacks or to store rockets or missiles, which has been found time and again. But look, if as you mentioned, it, it keeps happening so often. Clearly, there's a very it shows the 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 extent that Hamas is in embedded itself into all agencies, all infrastructure in Gaza over the past 12 years. The previous time that the United Nations uh, condemned Israel, there was talk of this person, this leader who was supposed to be coordinating the humanitarian aid. Did anything at all move forward with that? Yeah, so it's uh, Sigrid Kag, who is a former foreign minister in Europe, and she has taken up her position in, in recent weeks. She's supposed to actually this week be providing to the UN Security Council her first report on the humanitarian situation. Um, I spoke with a, an Israeli official who said that they're actually quite happy with um, working with her so far, that she has experience in on the Israel-Lebanon issue, trying to combat Hezbollah's presence on the border, and that she's not looking to kind of do her own thing, that there's a recognition that we already have a lot of cooks in the kitchen, and that the goal with that she sees her goal is simply streamlining uh, aid activity and and moving that forward. Um, and, and there's been a lot of cooperation so far, but the proof is in the pudding, and we'll see um, in terms of her report on this week of, of how she sees the situation, what she recommends in terms of whether we think that she's an actually uh, beneficial actor for Israel and for the humanitarian situation in Gaza. Okay, we'll check back next Shabbat, next Saturday. A senior United Arab Emirates official warned Wednesday that a dragged out war in Gaza risks turning Abu Dhabi's nascent relations with Israel into a, quote, cold peace. And this warning appeared to be the sternest that Israel has received since the war's outbreak from any of its Abraham Accord partners. To remind listeners, that's the UAE, Bahrain, and Morocco, which normalized relations with Jerusalem less than four years ago. So, Jacob, you spoke with an unnamed official. Tell us what this person said. Yeah, um, so I can say it was a very senior Emirati official. I can't go any further than that. But basically, it was pretty surprising to hear out of all the, the three countries that you mentioned, the UAE, it seems like it's been the warmest peace that Israel's had out of all the different um, uh, Abraham Accords countries. There's been celebrations for every first flight, first this, first that. I think there's a lot of excitement about the, the relationship that Israel has with the UAE. We've had $5 billion in trade over the past three years and $1 million Israeli tourists to the UAE. So that's a total game changer. It's not like anything we're seeing with, the, with Bahrain. To a degree, Morocco is moving in that direction in terms of tourism. But with the war, I think well, that, that's obviously taken a hit as well. Um, but the UAE has really stood, stood apart in terms of the economic cooperation and the people-to-people ties, at least Israel to the, going to the UAE. Um, and so for this official to say that, look, the longer the war goes on, the more isolated Israel will be, and that even warm peace that we have could eventually turn into cold peace, was, I think, uh, should should uh, spark some alarm bells in Jerusalem in terms of how it's thinking about trying to manage its ties with um, its, its Arab neighbors. That on the one hand, this comment shows that they're not considering really severing ties completely, but they could make them look like what we have with Egypt and Jordan, where they're very cold pieces that they're only at the government level and nothing really trickling down much below. Obviously, Israelis enjoy to go to Sinai, um, but that's basically the extent of um, Israeli travel to Egypt. We're not seeing 
Israelis go to Cairo. That's not very common at all. Um, and there are a lot of people that would say it's not safe enough. And for Jordan, the same thing as well. We don't have, there's not a, a people to people tie between Jordan. And we saw, of course, this week, this disgusting, um, restaurant that was opening up a falafel chain that's called named October 7th. So that kind of shows the level of animosity towards Israel and Jordan and, and Egypt. So I think um, th- there should be a lot of concern based off of this, this, um, this remark by the Emirati official. I think he did say privately that basically we're not asking for an immediate ceasefire, we, we, at least privately. I think publicly they have this, this role at the UN that they need to re- represent the Arab bloc, and that's why they speak a little bit more firmly there. But privately saying, we're just talking about, we, we want you to prosecute this war differently and talk about the day after and, and work with us. We're willing to work with you about the reconstruction of Gaza and, and, and boosting maybe the Palestinian Authority. That's something that's in everyone's interest um, to have a more moderate body functioning there, a reformed Palestinian Authority. But this feeling that there's no willingness to cooperate with that, that there's no talk, that obviously the UAE also would like to see some sort of two-state solution. So it can put this this issue to de- to bed. Um, that if Israel is not willing to cooperate on this, that there's this feeling that the the prosecution of the war is is not being done in a fair way. That that you that you can argue that you're protecting civilians, but when the numbers are so high, and that over nearly two million have been displaced, it's not something that the UAE thinks is 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 justifiable. So I think it's it's something definitely to watch for. Um, I think that this UAE official said that when we're talking about we made the strategic decision that, that all these countries have made these strategic decisions to make ties with Israel. We're not going to likely sever them over a certain death count. But it, the one thing that uh, a couple officials I spoke with did say is that the one game changer would be if there's this mass displacement, if there's a real move by Israel um, to displace Palestinians, that is when we could see not just uh, a cold peace, but a severing of ties. And I think that's why Netanyahu a few weeks ago made a point of saying, OK, I know there's a lot of ministers in my government who are talking about this, but actually it's not our policy. Jacob, thank you so much for this update and all others. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Please check out another installment tomorrow. This episode was produced by the Podwaves. If you have any questions about this or any other episode, please drop us an email at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom. Shalom.